0: Looking at uh, Matthew chapter 15, last part of Matthew 15, if you don't have a Bible with you, the passage we're going to be studying together is printed for you right there in the bulletin. And we're starting in verse 29. Hear God's word. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you set aside time for us to devote our minds to study the things you have to teach us. And Lord, we acknowledge it's a great grace that you have taught us about who you are and the things that you've done in the world. And uh, we need you to now do another act of grace to us, to to teach us what these words mean and to apply them into each one of our lives and, and to shape our thinking. And so, Lord, we present ourselves to you now, that, uh, that you might instruct us by your Spirit. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our generation, uh, one of the most common objections to Christianity, to the Bible is um, that for many people, religious institutions, you know, like the church, have been the source of some of the, the greatest acts of, you know, violence in the world and abuses of power in the world. And so for many people, you know, they say, how can I say that the church is, you know, as the Bible says, the pillar and buttress of the truth, that this institution has the very truth of the world that will save the world? How can I believe that when, you know, the church has such a track record? And that's why, you know, for many people, you know, many people that you've talked to have said things like, you know, I'm a very spiritual person, I believe in God, but I don't believe in what? Organized religion, right? I don't believe in organized religion. How do we answer that? Is there an answer to that? Yes, there is. Well, you know, first of all, one answer to that is that Jesus said, when, you know, when he was starting the church, he said that there were going to be false teachers. He says you should watch out for false prophets. You'll know them by their fruit. And so, and so Jesus anticipated, he knew, knew when the church came, when the church started, there was going to be people in the church who were hypocritical, who abused their power. There were going to be Christians who said that they were his followers and really weren't. And yet, what does Jesus do? He still starts the church. He trains the disciples to be these leaders. He gives them his authority. Right? He says to his disciples, what you... Uh, What's bound on, on earth will be bound in heaven. What you uh, loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So he gives them the authority. And, you know, some of us, we think of who Jesus was, that, you know, he was kind of this hippie who walked around saying wise things in sandals, you know. And he, he was kind of gentle and just said things about how we could get inner peace in our lives. But Jesus, I mean, it's crazy. Jesus understood himself to be the true king of the world. And he was initiating the kingdom of God, and he was building a whole structure. He's got officers and everything. He was building an institution. And so one of the things, though, that we see about both Jesus and his first leaders of the church is they acknowledged the church was going to have... people who are going to abuse their power. So we shouldn't be surprised that that's part of it. If, if Jesus and his apostles still believe in the church, we believe in him. But, you know, a second answer to that question, how can I, with the church's history of, of violence and crimes... that that Christians have done in history. How can I I believe in the church? The other thing is that Jesus says about his true followers that their good deeds that their life will be filled with will be done in secret. You know know where he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing? Which says that the people who really follow Jesus and love them, the abundance of good deeds that they're going to do where they're going to serve people, the only person who's going to know about them is God because they do them in secret. They're done anonymously. And so the things that are going to... What's going to be very public about the church? You know, megachurch pastor who has an affair or you know, is laundering money or something like that. There's some big scandal. Those are the things that are going to make, be public because God wants them to be public. He wants to expose them. So justice will be done. The good deeds, the, the countless good things that Christians have done and will do throughout history are largely done in secret. And so we wouldn't know about them. And so, but you know, over this last year, I've, you know, As I've been studying church history, I've also found that there's a third answer to this question. How do we answer the, you know, the church's track record throughout history? And as I've been studying, I've really come to see that despite the church's blemishes, that other than Jesus, the church is without a doubt the greatest blessing God has given to human civilization since the beginning of the world. Other than Jesus, the church is the greatest blessing that God has given to, given to human civilization throughout the history of the world. Now, I know that's uh, you know that's a big statement. You might say, "Well, you're a pastor. You know, you lead a church. Of course, you think it's the greatest thing in the world." You know, but I I want to show you this morning that this is uh, the truth of this, and the reason it's true is because the church, God's people, the people who follow Jesus, have been shaped by passages like this one that we just read it's a passage where Jesus welcomes the lame, the crippled, the mute, the hungry foreigners are coming to him and he embraces them and he loves them. And I know, you know, for many of us, if you've grown up in the church and you've heard stories like this that like we just read where Jesus heals people and you say, yeah, I've heard that before, I know Jesus heals people. It kind of loses the power of, we don't see how culturally transformative this event is that we're reading about. And so, um... You know, there are huge cultural ramifications for politics, for um, social and racial issues, for medicine, for education, for the arts. All of these things, all of life is shaped by these kinds of little verses that we're reading. And so that's what I want to show you this morning. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see three, I'd say, earth-shattering or culturally transformative truths from this passage. And this is what they are. That God loves the disabled. That God loves all races and that God loves the poor. Three simple things, and you may think they're obvious, but I want to show you how incredibly powerful and profound these these three are. Okay, so this morning, three things. First is this God loves the disabled. And you see that, you know, list of disabled people that are being brought to Jesus in this passage, verse 30. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. You see this list. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, you know, of course, this passage tells us something about Jesus' miraculous power, that he is God among us, that he actually has power to heal these things. But even before... There's this fact that Jesus is healing these people. There's also the amazing fact that just says that God loves the people that the world throws out. God loves the people that the world throws out. You know, what is the world value of people? The world values what you can give the world, right? What can you contribute? What can you do? How can you perform? And if you can contribute to us, thank you. We will embrace you. We will bring you in our arms and we will welcome you. If you cannot uh, if you, you cannot produce for us, then we have no need for you, and you're thrown away. And um, this is not the way it is in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' actions here have actually had a profound effect on human societies ever since his coming. And let me just give you a couple of examples. You know, in the ancient world, if you were sick, or if you are disabled, the explanation for that was generally that you were cursed by some god. There's some reason. Either you've done something that was foolish that got yourself cursed or there's a god that's against you. And so people in general wanted to dissociate themselves with you. You know, unless the curse is going to come on them, it's going to get transferred onto them. And so, you know, the disabled, you know, the lepers, the, the wh- whoever, are, are put away into an invisible place where they can't be seen by, by the public. And, um, And this was the nature of pagan society is to abandon the sick, the leper, and the disabled because they thought they probably deserved it. And so when the church showed up in the middle of pagan society in the ancient world and they read passages like this where Jesus was welcoming the people that were being hidden by pagan society, they had to take a completely different view. And, you know, there's a guy, Roddy Stark. Roddy Stark was a... um, a, uh, a professor at the University of Washington for 30 years. Uh, he's a sociologist of religion. And uh, he's at Baylor now. He's, uh, and he wrote a, uh, a, a great book called The Rise of Christianity, which talks about the first four centuries of how the church grew in the Roman Empire. And he talked about how you know, the, the church initially grew in the Roman Empire in cities. That's where the gospel first went to. And, and, uh, and in these cities, in the ancient world, the cities of uh, the, the Roman Empire were a filthy place. You know, they didn't have the you know, sewer systems that we had, the cleanliness that we had. And so it, fairly frequently, there would be these epidemics that would come through the cities and just wipe out scores of people, and people were just being killed. And what historians actually know is that the physicians, the pagan physicians, would leave the cities. Many of them actually couldn't even describe accurately what the, the you know, plagues were that were coming through the cities because they'd left so quickly. They wanted to get away from it. And so the Christians, though would go back into the city and care for the people that, that were plagued by these e- epidemics. And you know, I, on page three of your bulletin, I put a quote from uh, Dionysius, who's, who is a, a third century bishop, who talks about how the Christians were acting when these epidemics came. And uh, this was in a letter he wrote to some churches on Easter. This is what he says. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took the charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected... By, uh, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation, so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way to equal martyrdom. So these Christians, they go back into the city and care for people and take the disease and they die and the people they were caring for get better and leave. This is, and, and, and so the, in the pagan societies, they see this where they've been running away from disease and they see Christians running towards it. They say, we've never seen anything like this before. What is this? And as Christians, you know, what they were doing this is they bring the sick into their homes. Instead of throwing them out in the street, they bring them into their homes and care for them in their homes. And it's in these little homes where Christians were nursing and care for the sick which was the emergence of hospitals, which started in the fourth century. Uh, uh, Basil of Caesarea was a bishop who went to the, he goes to the emperor and petitions the emperor to give him this pristine piece of land just on the outskirts of Caesarea. and he he develops this whole complex buildings, you know, kitchens, storehouses. Um, monks live there, physicians live there, nurses live there, and it was a place where uh, the you know the infirm, the elderly those who were seriously sick, lepers, could go and live there and be cared for. And it was, they called it, it this new city. And it was a city where, um, it was a new city where misfortune was called a blessing because you got to live and, and be cared for by these people. And of course this is the beginning of hospitals. And it was, it was brilliant, it was industrious, it was creative, it was utilizing all kinds of resources to care for who? For what? For people who had nothing to contribute, who couldn't contribute to society, and they said these people have worth and dignity. Why? Because Jesus shows us this passage; He loves them. That's the only reason. And you might say, you know, we have places like that all over. Hospitals. We have where we take the sick and where we care for them. You know, kids, how do you like to live where, in a place where there's no hospitals, right? You know, you don't have anywhere to go where you're sick. You think Jesus? Jesus is the one. Is because of him, because of what he's doing in passages like this that has given us a new imagination, a new way of seeing the world so that we would actually care for the weak. And let me just tell you, this is, this, this is just a couple of examples. You think of a hospital as a cultural institution, how profound that is. These are just a couple of examples where what Jesus is doing in bringing his kingdom actually transforms cultures, introduces new ways of thinking in a culture. And this has had a permanent effect on our culture. Go to um, any public school in in our county. And even in a school that doesn't talk about Jesus, doesn't honor the name of Jesus, and what you'll find is they have elaborate programs caring for kids with special needs that are very expensive. It's very expensive to care for them. And why are they doing that? Why are we spending all that money? There's something that is... We've learned something in our way of thinking that we care for the least and for the weak and the disabled that we owe something to them? Where did we learn that? What view of the world taught us that? Now this is an important thing. I'll tell you what didn't teach us it. It was evolution. What did evolution teach us? That if you're weak, if you're sick, if you can't keep up, you better adapt quick or you're going to die. And nature will uh, rid itself of you. And if you're beautiful, If you're athletic, if you're intelligent, if you're strong, then nature will embrace you and you'll have life and you'll have prosperity. And (laughs) Jesus completely inverts this. And he says that God loves the disabled and the weak. It's a complete inversion. And it's that view of the world that has given us our understanding of human dignity and, and human value. And so, you know, by the way, if you're visiting with us, And you'd say, you know, I'm not a Christian uh, interested in learning about Christianity. Let me just ask you this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that humans have value and dignity, every single human being? Where did you learn that? Because human history doesn't teach us that. The pagan cultures of antiquity don't teach us that. Nature certainly doesn't teach us that. Many cultures today don't teach us that. Where did we learn it? Well, you know... uh, Luke Ferry, Luke Ferry is an a, a atheist philosopher, he's a renowned philosopher in, uh, in France, University of Paris. He says that cultures only understand human dignity and human value once they've met Jesus. It is not until a society has met Jesus that they understand that all people have value. And still to this day, societies that have not yet met Jesus and at some point in their life embrace Jesus still don't understand that. So this is um, an incredibly profound truth that the only intellectual foundation for us to believe in value and dignity of all people is that Jesus loves them. That is incredible. You know, by the way, when the weak are cared for, how do people respond to that? When they see the weak being cared for, how do people respond? Verse 31. And the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled... Uh, healthy and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. You know, in those pagan cities where the Christians went back in, and they nursed the, you know, if you if you were about to die and some Christian came in and nursed you back to health and brought you into their home, what do you think the very next thing you're going to be doing is? Who taught you this? I love. Tell me about Jesus. All right. Who is your God? I want to know him. I've never seen anything like this. It leads us to wonder. Okay. So God loves the disabled, but you know, you'll notice at the end of that verse I just read, verse 31. It says, and they glorified the God of Israel. It's actually kind of an odd statement to put in right there. Why does he say specifically the God of Israel? Why does he say they worship the Lord or something like that? The reason was because the people that Jesus is caring for right here are not Jews. They're not Israelites. They're not people of Jesus' tribe. They're outsiders. They're foreigners. And this is the second profound truth we learn from this passage. Not just that God loves the disabled, but second, that God loves all races. God loves all races. His love breaks down racial barriers. And, you know, again, you might think that's an obvious thing. You might think, yeah, all people have dignity. That's obvious. All races are equal. That's obvious. But, you know, that wasn't obvious in the ancient world. In the ancient world, um, in, in a pagan society the gods were all associated with different people groups and tribes. So every tribe or piece of land had its own god that they worshipped, and they would battle against the other tribes, and their god would fight against their god, and our god defended us and represented us, and your god defended you. And, and what the Bible says is something very different, actually. This is what uh, Paul says in Ephesians about God, that he is the one from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. He is the one God over all nations and tribes that embraces them all and loves them all. And, um, and you, you know, in order to see that in this passage, this, it's not as obvious in this passage, but, you know, um, if you've been with us the past few weeks, about a month ago, we were in chapter 14. There was a story very like this where Jesus didn't feed the 4,000, he feed the 5,000. If you remember that? It's kind of odd that this thing happens twice. He feeds a 5,000, he feeds a 4,000. Why, why is this story happening twice? And, and it's even kind of strange because, you know, you look at uh, at verse 33 here. And the disciples say, and the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? So Jesus is out, out there with 4,000 men plus women. And this could be like 8,000 people. And they're saying, where are we going to get all the bread? And you're kind of thinking... You know, weren't you there last chapter? We were just last chapter. He fed the five thousand. We know Jesus can do this. Why? Why are they questioning where he's going to get bread again? The only answer to that is that they in the in the last section. Or let me let me show you actually the answer is uh, is in verse verse twenty nine. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Now what this is talking about is, uh, you know, Jesus grew up on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, which was a largely Jewish region. This hilly country that he's talking about is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is a, is a non-Jewish region. And so all these people who are coming, that, you know, the, the, the mute the, and the crippled and the lame that he's caring for, all these 4,000 who are hungry, they're not Jews. They're, they're Gentiles. They're, they're people from the, the nations. And so Jesus feeds them. And so what it says, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 Jews, he's saying Jesus loves the Jews. And if he's the 4,000, Jesus also loves the nations. He's not just for his tribe. He's for all people. And actually, let me just give you a quick summary. The space in between, there's three stories in between the two feedings. The first story is when Jesus walks on the water. In the Old Testament, the, the sea is always an image of the nations. You know they're all chaotic and there's waves and you know wind and stuff like that. It's very dangerous. And what does Jesus do? He walks out on the sea and calms the sea. It's showing that he's the Lord of the nations, not just the land, which is what Israel is, but the the nations. And then the very next story, what happens? Jesus says, "It's not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles them, but what comes out." Which is this reference to the Old Testament. Israel could only eat certain foods, and it was part of the way that they remained distinct from all the nations. And Jesus says, "No, you eat all foods." And it was his way of saying, no, we're bringing in all the nations and the people of God. It's not just Israel my chosen people, but I'm bringing all, all people in. And then last week, if you were here, what was the story about? The Canaanite woman who comes and asks for Jesus to free her daughter from a demon possession. It's again a foreign woman who comes and Jesus embraces her and, and uh, does a miracle for her. What all of these are saying, all these stories are signifying that Jesus' kingdom and his love are going to embrace all the races of the world. All the races of the world. And this is how the Apostle Paul put it. Now, this is a little bit of a long quote. Listen to this, though. This is really profound. This is in Ephesians 2, verse 14. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, that is, the Jews and the Gentiles, God's chosen people and all the other nations, who's made us both, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance. So he abolishes the laws, you know, the food laws that keep Israel separate from the nations. He's abolished those so that they can all come together. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body and through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. All this language of peace, he's making peace. He's destroying the hostility, the dividing wall between us. Jesus is bringing ethnic groups who would normally be warring against each other. He's bringing them together to love one another. And that they find peace in him. These chapters that we're reading in the Gospel of Matthew are the turning point in history where God is beginning to bring his peace to the nations. And he's going to do it through the Gospel. Now some of you are going to say, well, That was 2,000 years ago. How has that played out? Has that played out in history at all? Making peace between the nations? There's quite a lot of warring going on in the nations. Well, let me give you a few answers to that. The first answer to that is that there is no other religion in the world that is multi-ethnic and multicultural as a Christian church. You look at all the continents, you know... uh, The the Christian church is basically uniformly dispersed over the inhabited continents of of the globe. You know, if you go to Europe, you go to Asia, you go to Africa, South America, North America, Australia. There's this almost a uniform dispersion of how many, uh, what percentage of the church is in each one of these continents. about, you know, 20 to 30 percent in, in each one. That this is a multi-ethnic, multicultural community, and actually, even you know, in the ancient world, in those cities, with those filthy cities, you know, in, in the ancient cities, they were divided up into these districts, where, um, you know, just like you know, you go into a city, you know, in the modern world, where there's be you know Chinatown or something like that or Little Italy, where an ethnic group goes into its district and forms a district, and they had these walls around their district, and you didn't go into other people's districts because it was going to be dangerous. But then the gospel came into these cities. And churches were formed. And what did people have to do? They had to go over the walls into other districts to go worship with the other ethnic groups. And that's, that's exactly what Paul's talking about, the dividing walls being broken down by Jesus. And, you know, this has happened in our culture recently. You know, uh, many sociologists will say that if you go back to the 60s and the Civil Rights Movement in, in our country, that that was a religious revival. You know, where, where were most of the speeches happening about the civil rights movement They're happening in churches? Whites and blacks were coming together to worship together in churches. And uh, there was even a tremendous amount of theology that was reinforcing what was motivating the civil rights movement. And so what Jesus is doing here has the power to draw the nations together. And of course, this is the picture that the Bible gives. This is from the book of Revelation, Revelation 7-9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The picture of the world that Jesus is leading us towards is all nations in their own tongues, in their own languages, of their own cultures, devoted and glorifying God in those cultures. And you know, that's actually, that is something unique, by the way, about Christianity all other major religions are entrenched in a cultural group. Whether that's Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, there's something unique about Christianity that it transcends culture, it transcends ethnic groups, and that's something that it's done through the, uh, throughout human history. So, listen, so far, these are incredibly profound statements. That, first of all, these are historical facts. That If you believe in the dignity of all human beings, that includes the disabled, the sick, the elderly, and if you believe in the equality of all human races, those beliefs have been introduced into human society by the words and actions of Jesus Christ. That is incredible. Okay? But we see one last thing in this passage, that not only God loves the disabled and God loves all races, but the third thing is that God loves the poor or the hungry. And uh, you know, the church has, of course, been impacted by these words. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus says he is unwilling to send away the hungry and the poor. He doesn't send them away. And, you know, I don't have time to talk about the countless ways this is shaped Christians, you know, our Christians have gone throughout the world into, into the poor, destitute places simply motivated by the love of Christ to care for people. But um, I do want to, you know, I want to make something very clear. Even as I'm trying to defend the history of the church and the world, which of course has blemishes, many blemishes, um, because I know that many people would say, I know you think um, Christians are, are, I know you think that Christians are great and that they're better than everyone else. And you know that's exactly the kind of arrogance that I don't like about Christians. They think they're better than everyone else. And you think you've been doing all these good things. And I just want to tell you, I really I don't think that. I think that's maybe the most fascinating thing about it is that Christians aren't better than everyone else. And all of the sins, all of the problems, all the you know the the troubled upbringings, all the um, the problems of whether it's depression, whether it's poverty, whether it's sickness, whether it's you know, mental issues, whatever it is, all of those problems that are out in the world are present inside the church. We have all those same temptations. All the sins that are out in the world are present inside the church. And yet, how can a group of people that have all those same temptations, those those same sins, become an institution that is so world-changing? How is that possible? That's the most amazing thing. It's because Jesus is present among his people. Jesus is here. and it's not that we're better, it's that he's better. And where he is, he transforms the world. And so the question for us is how do we become that kind of church? And this is the last thing that I want to say is in verse 36 here, look at verse 36. It says that Jesus took seven loaves in the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Jesus breaks bread, and he disperses them. What does that sound like? Sounds like what we do every Sunday. We come here, and we come to the table. Actually, uh, eucharisteo is a Greek word right there for giving thanks. It's where we get the word Eucharist. That's what many Christians have called coming to the bread and the wine. And um, what happens to us when we come to this meal as a people? Well, Jesus says that this bread is his body. It's broken for us. And when we eat the bread, what do we become then? If we have his body in us, we are his body. And so all of a sudden, the disabled, their body is my body. And so I can't help but care for it, because that's my body. As much as I care for my own body, I'm going to care for that body. And then Jesus says, we come and we drink this. This is his blood. And when we all drink Jesus' blood, what does that say about what's in us? We all have the same blood. And what divides ethnic groups is that they all have different blood. They come from different bloodlines. We have the same bloodline that we come from. We are brothers and sisters. And it's breaking down the dividing wall. But also, we come as the poor and the hungry. And we realize when we come to this table, we say, you know what? I'm, even if I'm not physically disabled, I know that spiritually I'm disabled. And Jesus embraces me. And even though I may not you know, ethnically be a foreigner among the people I am, you know, spiritually, I was, I was far off from God. And what did he do? He brought me in. He made me a part of this family. And he fed me. And as we are shaped by that, and our whole imagination, our whole view of the world is shaped by that, we're transformed. And so, you know, you might think this meal, a little bread and a little wine, a small thing, a little ritual we do, but it is in this that Jesus is slowly transforming the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of our God. He has been doing it for 2,000 years. And so, you do not need to be ashamed of Jesus' work in the world throughout history. He has done, is doing, and will do immeasurably good for our world. And the good news is, you and I, we get to be a part of it. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we thank you for your word and... We thank you for your great love. We are all here this morning acknowledging, confessing that we have tasted of that love. It is our supreme joy. And with the crowds who wondered at you, that you would welcome the broken as you have welcomed us. We wonder at you, our Lord. And we pray that you would teach us by these words and actions that we read in the scriptures, that we here in Bellingham would just be a small part of that great kingdom that you are building around this world. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name.